Section 7 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 3, From the Accession of Nicholas II Until the Present Day, by Shimon Dubunov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S. Eskim, Manikut Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 33, The Kishinev Massacre, Part 2. 3. Echoes of the Kishinev Tragedy A cry of horror rang throughout Russia and the more or less civilized countries of the world when the news of the Kishinev butchery became known. The entire liberal Russian press voiced its indignation against the Kishinev atrocities. The most prominent Russian writers expressed their sympathy with the victims in letters and telegrams. Leo Tolstoy voiced his sentiments in a letter which could not be published on account of the censorship. The humanitarian writer Korolenko portrayed the horrors of Kishinev in a heart-rending story under the title House No. 13, in which, on the basis of personal observation, he pictured how the Jewish residents of one house were tortured to death by the rioters. The story was circulated in an illegal edition, its publication having been strictly forbidden by the censor. But in Russia itself, the cry was stifled by the heavy hand of plebis censorship, and wherever a fraction of the terrible truth managed to slip through the barriers of the censor, pleb sent out warnings to the papers threatening to discontinue their publication for the pursuit of an injurious policy. Such a fate actually overtook the Russian Jewish Boskot in St. Petersburg, the legal journal Pravo, the law, and others. The entire Russian press was forced by the government to publish the falsified version embodied in its official reports, in which the organized massacre was toned down to a casual brawl, and the inactivity of the troops was explained either by the inadequacy of their numbers despite the fact that several battalions were stationed in the city or by the incapacity of the police while the dead and wounded were referred to in a vague manner so as to suggest that the victims of the brawl were to be found on both sides. But the revelations in the foreign press were of a nature to stagger all Europe and America. The correspondent of the London Times published the text of a secret letter addressed by Plev to the governor of Bessarabia, in which, two weeks before the pogrom, the latter official was told that in the case of anti-Jewish disorders, no recourse shall be taken to armed interference with the urban population, so as not to arouse hostility to the government in the population, which has not yet been affected by the revolutionary propaganda. The authenticity of this letter is not entirely beyond suspicion, but there can be no doubt that instructions to that effect, rather by word of mouth than in writing, probably through the sacred agent Levendal, had been actually transmitted to the authorities in Kishinev. From the fact that on the second day of the pogrom, the governor was still waiting for instructions from St. Petersburg Permitting him to discontinue the massacre, it is evident that he must have received previous orders to allow it to proceed up to a certain point. The horrors of the Armenian massacres in Turkey 
against which even Russian diplomacy had protested more than once, faded into insignificance before the wholesale butchery at Kishinev. Europe and America were deeply agitated. The Jews outside of Russia collected large funds for their unhappy Russian brethren, but their efforts exhausted themselves in sympathy and philanthropy. The effect of the catastrophe upon Russian Jewry was more lasting. A mixed feeling of wrath and shame seized the Jewish public, wrath against the organizers and abettors of the terrible crime, and shame for the tortured and degraded brethren who, not having a chance to save their lives, had failed to save their honor by offering stout resistance to this beast in human shape who was sure of immunity. The poet Fluke poured forth his sentiments in a Yiddish poem, voicing his sorrow at the physical helplessness of his nation and confining himself to an appeal to the kind Jewish heart. Too keen and grievous is our pain, too weak our hand the blow to parry. Come on, then, tender Jewish heart, the love and comfort to us carry. Brothers, sisters, pray, have pity, dire and dreadful is our need. Shrouds we want the dead to bury, and bread that is living we may feed. A little later, the young poet Bialik gave powerful utterance to his feeling of wrath and shame in his burden of Nemirov. He makes God address these words to the martyred nation. Your dead have died in vain, and neither you nor I can say for what they gave their lives and why. No tears shall flow for you, the Lord swears by his name. For though the pain be great, great also is the shame. And which of them the greater, though son of man, decide? In picturing the memorial services held in honor of the Kishinev victims at the synagogues, he angrily exclaims in the name of God, Lift thine eyes and look how steeped they are in grief. You hear them cry and sob and mournful prayers read. You see them beat their breast and for their forgiveness plead. What are they praying for? Tell them to protest, to shake their fist at me and justice to demand. Justice for all they have suffered throughout the generations, so that my heaven and throne shall quake to their foundations. Neither the pogroms at the beginning of the 80s nor the Moscow atrocities at the beginning of the 90s can compare in their soul-stirring effect upon Russian Jewry with the massacre of Kishinev. It awakened the burning feeling of martyrdom, but with it also the feeling of heroism. All was seized by one and same impulse, the organization of self-defense, as if to say, since the government fails to defend our life and honor, then we ourselves are bound to defend it. The pogrom panic which spread over the entire South following upon the terrible days of April 6 and 7 led to the organization of self-defense societies in a number of cities. Plev knew of these preparations and found himself in a difficult position. He realized that these endeavors might interfere with the engineering of the pogroms since the latter would no longer be safe for the murderers and plunderers, and he was, moreover, full of apprehension that these self-defense societies might become 
hotbed of revolutionary propaganda and provide a training ground for political demonstrations. These apprehensions were voiced in a circular issued at the end of April, in which the minister instructed the governors first that no self-defense societies should be tolerated, and second, that the authorities should adopt measures for the prevention of violence and the suppression of lawlessness. Subsequent events showed that the latter order was never put into effect. The first instruction, however, was carried out with relentless cruelty, and during the following pogroms, the troops made it their first business to shoot down the members of the self-defense. Such being the frame of mind of Russian Jewry, the U.K.s of May 10, 1903, opening up to the Jews for the free domicile, 101 localities in various governments of the Pale of Settlement, which had hitherto been barred to them under the temporary rules of 1882, was received with complete indifference. As a matter of fact, many of the rural settlements included in that UKs were in reality towns which had been converted into villages at the instigation of spiteful officials for their sole purpose of rendering them inaccessible to the Jews. The stolen property was now returned with a slight surplus. The Danaid gift, which seemed to be offered to the Jews as a compensation for the Kishnev horrors, could not but fill them with disgust. Parenthetically, it may be remarked that the government itself nullified the moral effect of its act of grace by issuing on the same day a new repressive law prohibiting the privileged Jews who were entitled to the right of domicile outside of the pair of settlement from acquiring real property in the villages and hamlets. The note of rightlessness was loosened by a hair's breadth in one place and tightened in another. Grief and shame over the Kishinev days armed the hand of Pinkus Dashevsky, a high-minded Jewish youth against the most culpable instigator of the massacre, Grushevan. Dashevsky, the son of a military surgeon, traveled from Kiev, where he was a student at Polytechnicum, to St. Petersburg, to inflict punishment on the miserable hireling of Judeophobia, who had caused the Kishnev conflagration by his criminal newspaper agitation. On June 4, 1903, he assailed Khrushchevan in the heart of the capital on the so-called Nevsky Prospect, wounding him in the neck with a knife. The wound proved of no consequence, and the victim was able to go home without accepting the first aid proffered to him in a Jewish drugstore nearby. Dashevsky was arrested and brought to trial. At the preliminary examination, he frankly confessed that he had intended to avenge the Kishnev massacre by killing Khrushchevan. Khrushchevan, now more ferocious than ever, demanded in his newspaper Znamia that the Jewish avenger be court-martialed and executed, and his demand was echoed by the entire anti-Semitic press. The case was tried in a district court behind closed doors, the government of Plev evidently fearing the appearance of the sanguinary ghost of Kishnev in the courtroom. Khrushchevan was represented by anti-Semitic lawyer Shmakov, who subsequently figured in the Bailey's trial. The counsel for Dashevsky, the lawyer Grutzenberg and others, pleaded that his client's act 
had been inspired by the intention not to kill, but merely to voice his protest against the unbridled criminal activity of Khrushchevan. Tashevsky received a severe sentence of penal military service for five years, August 26. An appeal was taken to the Senate, but the judgment of the lower court was sustained. The youth, who, in a fit of righteous indignation, had given vent to the outraged feelings of his martyred nation, was put in chains and sent into the midst of the murderers and thieves, while the venal instigator, whose hands were stained with the blood of numerous victims, escaped unscathed and assisted by public funds, continued his criminal activity of fanning the hatred of the populace against the Jews. 4. Dr. Herzl's Visit to Russia The alert bureaucratic mind of Plev was quick to make its deductions from the Dashevsky case. He realized that the Kishnev massacre would inflame the national Jewish sentiment and divert the national or Zionist cause into the channel of revolutionary movement. Accordingly, on June 24, 1903, Plev issued a circular to the governors which was marked strictly confidential and sent out through the police department, ordering the adoption of energetic measures against the propaganda of the ideas of Zionism which had departed from its original aim, the transfer of Jews to Palestine, and had directed its activity towards strengthening the Jewish national idea, preaching the organization of the Jews in secluded societies in the places of their present domicile. Acting upon these orders, the police began to persecute the Zionists in a number of cities, prohibiting the sale of Jewish colonial trust shares, collections for the Jewish national funds, and meetings and conferences of the Zionist societies. Shortly thereafter, on July 25th, the leader of the Zionists, Dr. Herzl, arrived in St. Petersburg to induce the Russian authorities to discontinue these persecutions. Apart from this immediate object, Herzl had another more important mission in mind. He hoped to obtain a promise from the Russian government to exert a diplomatic pressure upon Turkey in favor of permitting the settlement of Jews in Palestine on a large scale. During his four interviews with Plev, the Zionist leader succeeded in convincing the minister that it was in keeping with the interests of the Russian government to assist the Zionist movement. Plev replied, and subsequently confirmed his reply in writing that the Russian government was willing to help Zionism so long as its political activity would be directed towards the attainment of its aims outside of Russia, towards the creation of a Jewish center in Palestine and the emigration of the Jews from Russia, but that as soon as the movement would be turned inwards, that is, towards the propaganda of the Jewish national idea and the organization of Jewry in Russia itself, it would not be tolerated, being subversive of the Russian national policies. Herzl assured Plev that the political Zionism, Sangfras, has no other aim in view except the creation of a center outside of the diaspora. Both Plev and Herzl seem to be satisfied with the results of their conversation. Herzl saw also the Minister of Finance, Vitter, 
and the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Lamsdorf, and left St. Petersburg in a hopeful mood. On his way to St. Petersburg, particularly during his stay in Vilna, Herzl was the object of stormy ovations by the Zionists. At the same time, he was severely criticized by the representatives of other Jewish political groups who thought that he had lowered the national dignity of the Jewish people by conducting negotiations for the salvation of Jewry with the men on whose forehead was stamped the case mark of Kishnev. It seemed that the severe crisis which had set in for political Zionism when the hope for obtaining a charter from the Sultan had receded into a distance had impelled Herzl to catch at a straw at the negotiations with the Russian government. He was evidently of the opinion that the Russian pharaohs who had countenanced the method of reducing the Jewish population in Russia, such as had been practiced at Kishnev, might be willing to achieve the same object by rendering its diplomatic assistance to the Zionist plans. A pledge in this direction was actually given to Herzl. But Herzl overestimated the importance of the promises made to him by potentates who merely looked upon him as a noble-minded dreamer. Two weeks after Herzl's visit to St. Petersburg, the acuteness of the Zionist crisis manifested itself at the 6th Congress at Basel, August 11 to 16, 1903. On that occasion, Herzl announced his new project, the colonization of Uganda in British East Africa, by virtue of a charter which had been offered to him by the British government. He pointed out that this project had a definite aim in view, the amelioration of the terrible condition of Russian Jewry, for which purpose Zion at that particular moment was not available. Herzl's pronouncement rent the Congress in twain. One section seized enthusiastically upon the Uganda project, which held out the promise of at least a temporary shelter in Africa, a Nacht Asyl for a part of the agonized nation. The other section protested violently against this attempt to create a Zionism without Zion, against the abandonment of Palestine and the higher aspirations of the movement. After many stormy and soul-stirring scenes, the majority of the Congress adopted a resolution to send an expedition to Uganda to investigate the proffered country from the point of view of its fitness for Jewish colonization. Thereupon, all the opponents of the Uganda project, the so-called Nine Zaga, the naysayers, mostly Russian Zionists, left the Congress Hall in a body. The movement was now rent by a severe conflict, the result of the struggle between the two principles which had long been intermingled in the theoretic foundations of Zionism, Palestinianism and territorialism. This internal conflict culminated in an open split between these two principles. Out of the Zionist movement was born the territorialist organization, which proclaimed as its object the creation of a Jewish autonomous center on any available point of the globe. For the blood of Kishnev cried out for an exodus from the new Egypt. The emigration to the United States, where the prisoners of Tsardom had, in the course of 20 years, 
beginning with 1881, succeeded in forming a big Jewish center, had passed the million mark, and was expected to assume larger and larger dimensions. The Jewish public press insisted on the necessity of regulating the emigration to America, not only as a social economic, but also as a national factor. It was pointed out that a considerable portion of the historic national center in Russia and Poland was, under the pressure of external events, in the process of removing to North America, and that practical Jewish politics had the direct duty of organizing this great rising center of Jewry. End of section 7.